Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Hannah Strong. I'm Darren Richmond. And I'm Simran Hans. On the show this week, a teenage Tony Soprano gets himself a gun in The Many Saints of Newark. Heads will roll in David Lowry's Arthurian adaptation, The Green Knight. And in Film Club, we revisit Matteo Garone's Napoli mob drama, Gamora. That's all coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello, do not adjust your wireless. This is Truth in Movies, but I am not Michael Leader. Uh, he is on a well-deserved break, so I am sitting in the host chair this week, and I am joined by two new guests since our revamp. Uh, so we're going to get them to introduce themselves in a second. Uh, Darren Richmond and Simran Hans, welcome to the show. We're very happy to have you here to chat all things Sopranos and... The Legend of King Arthur, I guess. Uh, first of all, Darren, who are you? Thanks very much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm Darren Richmond. I'm a writer and journalist. I've, uh, I think the last one I was due to be on was A Quiet Place 2, and then everything shut down, and it's been about 18 months. And so here I am. I'm back. Wonderful. Yeah, the gosh, I didn't realise. That's, that's quite a long wait. I feel like uh, it's uh, a very long engagement, but only a very long wait for the podcast debut. So uh, we're, we're thrilled to finally have you on. And Simran, I believe you were on the podcast a long, long time ago. Um, but please introduce yourself again for our listeners. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Simran Hans. I'm a writer and film critic for The Observer, friend of the mag, friend of the pod. Um, happy to be here. Wonderful. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you both on. Uh, two Sopranos super fans, I believe. Uh, so we're gonna. I'm sure we're gonna get into a lot of good stuff in a second. Uh, but now it is time to grab yourself some gabagool and maybe a gun if you feel like it. As we head back to 1960s New Jersey for the much fated Sopranos prequel, The Many Saints of Newark. Now, here's a little bit of synopsis. I don't think it quite gets into the film really what's going on, but uh, set in the explosive 1960s in the era of the Newark riots when the African-American and Italian communities are often at each other's throats. Among the gangsters within each group, including a young Tony Soprano, the dangerous rivalry becomes especially lethal. Now, The Sopranos ended back in 2007, but people are still quite rightfully obsessed with the show. I think lockdown has seen a lot of people finally 
have the time to kind of sit down and watch it uh, at long last. And I, I am one of them. I became obsessed. Uh, but this isn't necessarily about my own passion for the show and uh, Christopher Moltisanti's character arc. Uh, I'm going to come to you first, Darren. Were you kind of apprehensive about the idea of a prequel film? Are you excited? How did you expect this to all kind of uh, turn out? Um, I was certainly a bit apprehensive. I mean, I am a man in my 30s, so The Sopranos is obviously my favourite television drama ever made. (laughs) And, um, you know, the second this was announced, there was some part of me that was thinking it was left so perfectly. I know there are mixed feelings that people have about the conclusion of The Sopranos, but for me, it, it couldn't have ended anywhere else. And when David Chase announced this, my immediate thought was, I don't think he's going to ruin his legacy. And so I am looking forward to seeing what he does with this and and how it turns out. Wonderful. And Simran, do you have a similar kind of like tentative excitement? No, I have almost the opposite um, response. So like you, Hannah, I finally watched The Sopranos in lockdown. I binged all of the seven series it's it's well so i think six is split into two parts isn't it so it's basically seven it's uh, the reason why i'm getting confused is because i read um the matt zoller sites book about the sopranos after watching it the soprano sessions and i think some of the people who worked on it kind of unofficially refer to it as uh as seven series because the last one is so long but yes officially it's six series anyway i watched them all in three months and it was a very intense experience and so I have to kind of, you know, preface this by saying I'm a, a new super fan, but a super fan nevertheless. And so going into this movie, I thought, there's no way this is going to be good. It's going to be bad. I had very, very low expectations. And so was very pleasantly surprised, unlike dear Hannah over here, who uh, <laughs> I, I know was, was kind of disappointed by the film. But I do want to say... In, I don't know if this kind of counts as a very, very mild spoiler, but there is a moment in the film where you get a little bit of the theme song. I won't tell you where it lands. And I genuinely felt my spirit leave my body in that moment. I had such a visceral response to hearing that music and watching the movie. And uh, I knew it had me at that point. I, yeah, I mean, anyone that's kind of been on the Little White Lies website and read my review will know that I I, I have um, low opinions about this film, which is disappointing to me because I, I went in kind of wanting to love it. And I love uh, John Bernthal. He's kind of one of my, he's one of my boys, as the podcast community will know. Um, there's not enough of him in this film is what I will say. But um yeah, I think for me, it just kind of flattens a lot of what was so great about The Sopranos, you know, all the kind of like um, philosophical tangents and all the kind of strange, well, I mean, a dream sequence isn't really strange by um, nowadays standards, but doing a kind of four episode arc where it's all set in Tony Soprano's mind was kind of un- unthinkable at the time that the show was broadcast. Uh, but Darren, what did you make of the film itself? Um, It's very interesting hearing Simran talk about that moment because I was also, you know, here for that moment, but I felt the entire film was essentially Sopranos bingo. 
you basically watch the film and there was young Paulie and he was doing young Paulie things and there was Sylve <laughs> acting like Sylve and someone referred to this thing of ours and Uncle Junior said that Tony would never have the makings of a varsity athlete. You know, it was absolutely chock-a-block. It was... It felt to me like fan service for people who don't think they like things that have fan service. I'm not particularly into kind of sci-fi and fantasy, and I hear this sort of bandied around a lot. Oh, the new Star Wars is full of fan service, and this was just that for blokes in their mid-30s. And it was very interesting to me because David Chase sort of feels like his career, he's often said, it kind of got sidetracked. He is a movie lover. He always wanted to make movies. And yet this really does feel like a kind of TV film. And I thoroughly enjoyed it because I, I just was very much here for those things that it was giving me. But I also felt, it felt to me in a strange way, on The Sopranos podcast, they often talk about, very surprisingly, um, Michael Imperioli is a massive fan of the royal family, which I'm also a massive fan of. Uh, not The television programme that Carolina Hearn wrote and starred in, I must stress. And um, it felt to me a little bit like the Christmas specials we got in the last few years of Carolina Hearn's life, where they weren't essential, they weren't canonical, they didn't feel like, oh, this is the perfect royal family we remember, but it also felt like, yeah, I enjoy this writing, I enjoy these characters, this is fun. So I kind of had a good time with this film. I wouldn't rush to watch it again. I don't think it's going to stand up like The Sopranos as one of the great works of art, but I think if you like The Sopranos, there are enough things in it. And I did think that Chase's kind of love of movies was there throughout. I mean, uh, spoiler warning if you haven't seen The Sopranos, but this film is narrated by Michael Imperioli's character, who is a dead man, which felt to me a kind of nod to Sunset Boulevard and kind of classic Hollywood. And it did have these touches like that, but then it also just felt a bit like a TV movie. But if you were going to make a, a, you know, something extending the Sopranos universe, this felt like the thing to make. And I've seen that Chase has said there's the possibility now that they will make another one about Tony in his 20s. And that just, it just makes me think of those kind of Royal Family episodes. They just, they could do a few of these and they're not going to be essential and they're not going to go down like The Sopranos, but they will be fun for people who like The Sopranos, I think. Yeah, I think the idea of um, Sopranos bingo is, is a, a good way of putting it. Yeah, there were certainly moments where I thought, is this really adding anything to the film or is it just a kind of cheeky Easter egg for people that are obsessed with the TV show? But we must talk about Michael Gandolfini. Um, it's kind of the thing that was uh, really touted about the film was the fact that... Um, James Gandolfini's son would be playing the young version of Tony Soprano, which could come across as a gimmick, but I was really pleasantly surprised. I thought he was pretty, pretty great, actually. Uh, Simran, what did you make of his performance? Well, so to kind of set the film up a little bit for uh, anybody who's maybe not super well-versed in sort of Soprano's lore, um, the show is about a kind of middle-aged suburban dad who works in waste management by day and actually during the day and during the night is a mafioso crime boss in New Jersey. And so um, the film goes back to Tony's childhood and um, his kind of teen years. And like Hannah said, it was kind of 
presented to audiences in all of the promotional material and all of the teasing about the film as this kind of great hallowed acting debut and a really kind of haunted performance of Gandolfini's son um, playing him. We know that James Gandolfini passed away in 2013 very tragically and so um, yeah it's kind of you go into this film sort of expecting to see his son kind of ventriloquize is maybe the wrong word, but sort of reanimate the spirit of, of James Gandolfini. Um, actually, Tony is a minor character in this film, I would say. Um, a lot of the action and the kinds of the pivotal stuff uh, sort of... Uh, hmm. A lot of the action kind of pivots around his character and he's a catalyst for things happening. Um, he's the audience in a way, he's our way in, but it's not really about him. It's about Dickie Moltisanti, Christopher's father, who was a mentor to Tony um, and was the kind of uh, the, the hero or anti-hero of this earlier era of Sopranos legend. And so I think like there's a tension there um, that can kind of go either way. It's either a problem if you go in with a certain set of expectations, wanting to know more about Tony, you'll be disappointed because really it's not really about him or you can kind of see the Dickie Moltisanti story as an extension of the themes that the show dealt with about masculinity, about fatherhood, about kind of fate and whether we choose our fate or whether it's handed to us. What kind of agency do we have in our own lives? I think that's one of the key questions of the show that is also kind of deepened in the film and and for me that kind of worked I think um Alessandro Nivola is so good as Dickie Moltisanti um and I, I think Gandolfini like you said um Hannah he's brilliant in this film he's very low-key and understated and it doesn't feel like he's doing a caricature of his dad but there are these kinds of physical tics uh, and a kind of physicality about him that is really quite haunting um, but yeah, I think if you go in expecting it to be his movie, uh, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, I do think that maybe the marketing for the film hasn't quite nailed down what it's actually about, which is interesting because obviously the film is called The Many Saints of Newark. It's, you know, that title is a reference to the name Moltisanti. So it is um, perhaps, a, perhaps a flaw on my part that I wanted more Tony Soprano and I wanted more uh, Uncle Junior where the I thought Corey Stoll was hilarious in that role so so different from his usual kind of uh, you know very uh, buttoned up kind of um, tough guy-esque roles you know I thought he was he was marvellous really 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 great as um, this sort of very conniving weaselly uh, villain of of the piece um but we should yeah we should put some scores on this uh so darren i'm going to come to you first but for those who are new to the podcast those who uh may not understand our scoring structure we do every film with a three-part scoring system for anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect uh so darren would you like to give us your scores yeah so i was probably a three in anticipation because you know it's such a sort of hallowed work i was slightly concerned but i was also looking forward then in enjoyment in the moment, I would say it was probably a four. I had a really good time with it. A uh, special shout out, I have to say, for um, uh, 
Vera Farmiga um, playing Livia Soprano, who they had made up to look exactly like Carmela Edifalco, uh, with with the prosthetic nose, and uh, that did a lot for me in terms of the the, the Freudian aspect of Tony wanting to stup his mother. So I'll give it a four <laughs> in the moment, and then uh, probably a three in retrospect. I'm not going to be rushing back to watch it again the way I watched The Sopranos over and over again, but I had a good time with it, and uh, yeah, I'll go for a three i i would say my anticipation going in was, was a sort of average three um i was ready to be disappointed enjoyment uh, i i'd give this a four i i really like this film don't know if i'll be going to kind of you know watch it again and again but i did feel it deepened a lot of the kind of themes of the show my one reservation is really i guess the way it kind of closes down and closes in on certain storylines things that were a bit more ambiguous in the show uh such as Livia Tony's mother's mental health uh you know is she really ill or is she um an evil psycho um it's more ambiguous in the show and it's more explicit in in the film and I I guess I I didn't love that um but still you know came out on a high um, and I, I'm going to give this a generous four uh, as my, in retrospect as well, I, I'm here for it. I'm here for The Sopranos. Wonderful. Well, I actually feel like I should maybe rewatch it now in light of this chat and see if I can't uh, find it in my heart to be a bit more generous. Because for me, it was a, a four, three, two. I think I became more annoyed about it the longer I sat with it. Um, but I think, yeah, maybe I am being pedantic and kind of wanting things from the film that were never going to happen. So that's that. That is maybe on me. Um but from the legend of Tony Soprano to the legend of King Arthur's Court, we're going all the way from Newark to Camelot for David Lowry's The Green Knight. Now, a little bit of background for this. Uh, King Arthur's headstrong nephew, played by Dev Patel, embarks on a daring quest to confront the Green Knight, a mysterious giant who appears at Camelot. Risking his head, he sets off on an epic adventure to prove himself before his family and court. So, yes, this is the long-awaited new film from David Lowry, which almost didn't come out in the UK due to uh, some distribution snafu. Um, but, yeah, it's based on the story of Sir Garwin, a legend from King Arthur's court, and it's... it's, it's yeah, I mean, we'll get into my feelings on this subject in a moment. But uh, first of all, Simran, what's your track record with David Lowry? Were you kind of excited for this one? Um, yeah, I was excited for this one. I mean, it's Dev Patel in Chainmail. What more could you want? <laughs> um, I haven't seen all of David Lowry's films, but I really like a ghost story. Um, and I was quite interested to see what he'd do with something of this scale and, and this budget. And there's a scene like quite early on in the film where we see Dev Patel's character Gawain wearing this sort of bright kind of mustard yellow cloak. And it's so vivid against the kind of muddy dreariness of the castle um, in which they live. And from that moment, you know, this is not going to be a boring movie. This is going to be a swaggy movie. The coat <laughs> is sexy. The poem is sexy. I mean, so like my my kind of 
top line knowledge of this uh, story is that I studied it at university in a very dry medieval literature course. So I'm kind of familiar with the epic poem. Um, and it's one of the uh, the sexier ones of the era, I would say. <laughs> but, you know, you don't think of medieval literature as, as something that's like deeply... Um, visceral or, or sexy uh, or funny even and I, I think this has a, a really playful sensibility about it I, I really like this film jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it blue nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Brilliant. Yeah, I very much agree. I think um, that I was excited. I like David Lowry. And I spoke to Dev Patel for oh, David Copperfield, the personal history of David Copperfield. I was Lucky struggling you. to remember the whole name of that film. Mate, absolutely charming man. You know, sometimes in our industry, we speak to people and it's a bit of a letdown. But he bounded into the room, complimented me immediately. Just the most charming man in the world. Um, so... You know, I was already predispos- predisposed to like this, but he mentioned when we were speaking about he'd just finished The Green Knight and he'd said how intense it was being dunked into water tanks by David Lowry. And he said that, you know, he was uh, t- telling me about what a great time he'd had. So and that was two years ago. So I've really been waiting for this one to come out. And I had never studied the poem, but I'm a big kind of nerd for King Arthur I love I love all that stuff so I was yeah I was very much here for it uh Darren uh did the appeal of Dev Patel in Chainmail too much for you yes it did I mean the funny thing was I also studied at a university and it was in the opening weeks of my first year and we had to do old and middle English and what that basically involved was what I didn't realise I'd signed up for in an English course and there wasn't much more of it thankfully which was almost translating it was like doing Latin or something so I actually have a kind of like visceral response in that I hated this because I hated those weeks of university I hated doing the poem so I kind of went into this a little bit worried about oh god how's that going to affect me And actually, it's just a a terrific piece of work. Um, I I mean, it's rare to watch a film where it's so clear that every single frame has been thought about. Everything so smoothly runs together. It's beautiful to look at. The performances are fantastic. And actually, what I liked most about it 
was that, and I'm actually really hoping that that Joel Cohen's Macbeth will do a similar thing, which is that this story has lasted hundreds of years because it works and because it has something to say to people. And he hasn't messed around with it too much. It's pretty faithful and it tells the story it needs to tell. And it isn't postmodern and knowing and it's not kind of winky to camera. It's very much telling you the story you want to hear. And yeah, I think he's done an amazing job with this. And really that story is this kind of classic, almost sort of biblical tale of temptation. He so um in in the film, Gawain accepts a challenge. He's a sort of lad who likes drinking and sleeping around and having a good time and he thinks, Oh god, well I better kind of, you know, prove myself a little bit to become a knight. Um and so he accepts this challenge from the Green Knight, who looks like Treebeard, uh, a kind of monster esque <laughs> figure who who rocks up to the party and says, uh, you know, if you uh if you deal me a blow then um, that's fine, but I get to do it back to you in a year and a day's time. And so Dev Patel, this isn't a spoiler because it's the premise of the film, but uh, Dev Patel's <laughs> Gawain uh, swiftly beheads him and then is shocked and appalled to discover that the Green Knight picks up his own head and just plonks it back on his shoulders. And so kind of hanging over the film is this sense of um, kind of fate and a sort of almost like funeral-like journey um, of sacrifice because the noble thing is to, of course, rise to the challenge. And it's a question of whether he will do that, um, whether he will kind of, you know, um, do the noble thing. It's also a really weird film. It's very uncommercial. I'm not surprised that uh, the studio have possibly tried to bury it. There are some strange things going on here. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the things I respected and loved about the film is that um, I think David Lowry is a really interesting filmmaker because he has made things like Pete's Dragon and The Old Man and the Gun, which, you know, were very much kind of still retained his spark and his a, a very imaginative director. I think has a really wonderful eye for like casting as well. I think he always, his choices are always kind of spot on in that regard. But um, The Green Knight is not a film that's in easy sell to kind of a mainstream audience unless they have a particular interest in seeing Dev Patel in Chainmail which I do think is like it's worth the ticket price for that alone um but yeah it is it's a difficult one to grapple with and I think even for people who might love Arthurian films or even something like A Knight's Tale this is not that film it is you know we see King Arthur and Guinevere the first time we see them they're sat um, in the court at Christmas and they're presented, which something I really loved about it is they're presented as these kind of older, sickly figures who, you know, Sean Harris as uh, King Arthur is kind of looking for a potential successor to the throne. And, you know, he kind of sees his nephew as someone who might take over after he's gone. And it is this almost... Um, way of looking at the kind of fall of that old regime and I was very very taken with this kind of grim depressing look at uh, something that's usually I think painted especially in uh, Hollywood filmmaking as very kind of glamorous and sexy and this is a sexy film I will say like there are definitely sexy moments but um, it is also kind of grubby and 
depressing <laughs> and you do you you feel I th- I certainly felt throughout it this real um sense of uh protection towards Garwin because he is just a a bit of a baby and he doesn't really know what's going on and everyone's kind of patting him on the cheek like oh you you poor sweet simple man and I was yeah I was just very refreshed by someone showing uh, a, a great knight as as a little bit of a uh, an idiot at times and it's so interesting how there's that tension between um Gawain being sort of yeah you're right kind of puppyish and kind of you want to take care of him and he's just a bit clueless and the kind of horrors and and sort of strangeness that he has to face on this journey i mean the imagery in this film is beautiful and striking and strange you know there are these freaky naked giants who sort of loom in the distance uh as he's kind of crossing uh, a sort of no man's land there is a cgi fox that uh, has special talents that I won't spoil. Um, there are ghosts, there are witches, there are severed heads. It's all very, they're corpses. Um, it's all very otherworldly. And I, I love the, the kind of magic of this film. I love that also it's never questioned, which is, you know, kind of um, the beautiful thing. All these strange things happen, but it is just accepted within the kind of world of the film which I found so refreshing because I think it does take me out of a film like a fantasy film when I'm watching it and characters are kind of going whoa this is weird whereas Garwin's just like yeah sure why not I've already beheaded this giant green tree knight what what else could you possibly throw at me which you know I, I felt sorry for him but also enjoyed the candor with which he approached everything. Alicia Vikander's accent what do we think? She has a dual role in this film and <laughs> one of the voices is very believable and the other one is a stretch. Yes, uh, as a Yorkshire woman, um, her Yorkshire, I, I think it was meant to be a Yorkshire accent. Jesus Christ, it was it was painful. And I was very glad when she kind of switches into the other role because I found it so much easier to tolerate the way she was speaking. Um, but I have to say, I'm not usually a fan of hers and I am especially not a fan of Joel Edgerton. I really dislike him as an actor. Um, but this film, David Lowry, again, some kind of witchcraft he plays is that I, I actually very much like them both in this. Uh, so, you know, I... I Hat go my uh, um, hats off to the man. I think he really is able to kind of draw these performances out of his um, actors that otherwise we wouldn't be able to get. So I should, yeah, I could, I could happily ramble all day about how much I love this film. I am probably going to go and see it again because of how how special it is, and I am very much glad that people will finally get a chance to see it. Um, but we should give it some scores. So, again, same format as before. Uh, Simran, would you like to tell me yours? I'm going to go fours across the board here. Uh, I was excited about this film. I enjoyed it and I can't stop thinking about it. Wonderful stuff. And Darren, same question. Um, so, in anticipation, I was probably on a three, I guess, because of that university experience. But then that was slightly counteracted by the fact that it had two of the cast of The Witch in it, and it was A24, and the score was going to be their usual discordant noise, which I'm all about. Um, (laughs) And then I would say um, enjoyment and, in retrospect, would both be fours. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, 
I just thought it was just a really, really great piece of work. I mean, I read an interview with Lowry where he was saying he had the idea when he was a kid playing with a diorama, little action figures of the film Willow, which was a, a film that I watched when I was a kid. And, and I could sort of feel <laughs> that this had obviously percolated with him for a very long time, the same way that the poem has kind of percolated for a very long time. And it had that feel that this was something that hadn't been cobbled together. It really, really was like a, a, a labour of love, I guess. Lovely stuff. And yeah, I'm again, falls across the water for me. I think it's a wonderful film and so impressive on a technical level. If you read any interviews with Lowry and with the creative team, it is staggering the kind of work that went into this film to bring it to life. And a lot of things that you think are probably CGI, uh, not CGI, it's all practical effects. Uh, the Green Knight is all kind of practical effects and prosthetics so hats off to Ralph Innocent because it doesn't look comfortable uh but yeah wonderful film I highly recommend people go and check it out this week if they can uh if not I believe it's on home ends as well at the same time I think it's a simultaneous release so yes please do go watch it I think it's uh really has the potential to kind of get lost in the big glamorous uh, sway of Bond which comes out next week so yeah but make the time if you can we've been kind of everywhere today we've been to new jersey we've been to camelot and we're going to end things in naples italy with matteo garone's gangster drama gamora Five interwoven narratives document the lives of Toto, Roberto, Pasquale, Marco and Ciro and their complex relationships with the Camorra, the Neapolitan mafia whose cruel and brutal criminal world of corruption and coercion dominates society. So yes, Gamora. Matteo Garone, very strange and interesting director, has made a very kind of eclectic collection of films over the years. And this is sort of the antithesis of the uh, the Hollywood version of uh, organised crime. I think it's a very brutal, very kind of stark look at the mob and the mafia and all that kind of good stuff. Based on Roberto Savione's book of the same name, I believe there's also a television show now, but that is nothing to do with the film. It's based on the book, but completely separate, interestingly enough. So, yeah, what did you guys think of this? Was it a new watch? Was it a, uh, something you'd seen before? Was it Tell Me Everything? Um, for me, Matteo Garone is not a director I'm super familiar with. However, in my, um, in my job at The Observer, I kind of have to review everything that's coming out kind of on a week-to-week -week basis. So I really have a broad sense of what's been playing in the cinemas or what's been streaming. And Matteo Garone released a film in, I guess he would have released it last year, but he made it in 2019. And it's a, a version of Pinocchio. And it is so freaky and weird and brutal. And going in to watch this film, having seen his Pinocchio, uh, I realise most people would have probably watched those films the other way around. Um, <laughs> but watching Gamora, uh, knowing kind of, a little bit of his sensibility the brutality of it totally made sense to me I thought oh okay this is this guy's vibe <laughs> I have not seen his Pinocchio I have seen Dogman which I was <laughs> a very again a very kind of strange often cruel film uh but with some great dogs and a kind of great central performance in it um 
I'm heartened to know that he managed to make Pinocchio as kind of strange and <laughs> brutal as uh, his other work. Darren, what's your kind of situation with Garone? Were you familiar with Gamora beforehand? So I hadn't seen Gamora before, but funnily enough, um, my closest friends all went to see this when it was on in the cinema. And for about five, ten years afterwards, probably only in recent years has this stopped, it kind of became a, a sort of byword amongst them for being a dull film. So whenever we would go to the cinema, it would kind of be, oh, I hope we're not seeing another Gamora. Um, now, I, I, I certainly didn't find it as dull as I think they did. But, I mean, you said um, in your introduction there, absolutely rightly, it's kind of the antithesis to kind of glossy sort of Hollywood mafia and gangster films, something which he actually kind of makes quite clear because you have those two young kids early on uh, quoting Scarface and saying, I'm Tony Montana in this horrible, grim setting. But I also think it was kind of the antithesis to The Sopranos as well, in that what I struggled with here, and it's not a film without qualities, but I struggled slightly with the fact that it was difficult to care about anyone. It's kind of, it tells you these five interlocking tales, but actually I wasn't that invested in the outcomes and the fates of all these people. It's so unremittingly bleak. And it actually reminded me, um, more than any film, it actually reminded me quite a lot of the uh, Eleanor Ferrante series. But what that does is it kind of, that, that series of books anchors it in this relationship between these two women that you are very invested in, and around it swirls all of this mafia violence and criminality. Whereas I didn't feel like this had the hook. There wasn't, there wasn't one of the five stories that I was waiting to come back around saying, oh, I really need to see what happens to those guys. But that did very much feel like the point of how grim it was and is, I suppose. I think on that note, um, you know, it's interesting to kind of think about it in conversation with something like The Sopranos, because there are some similarities. You know, the opening sequence of this film, the first... I guess, two whacks that appear um, or that, that occur uh, take place in a tanning salon when one character is getting a manicure, which, as we know, is very important to the men of The Sopranos. <laughs> um, and also one of the main uh, characters, one of the five strands in this film, deals with waste management, um, which is Tony Soprano's profession. And I, I did feel that um, perhaps... One of the reasons why we're not encouraged to kind of emotionally identify with and root for the characters in the same way we are maybe in Hollywood film is because uh, Garone um, is being uh, very kind of, I, I guess, moralistic and, and critical of the mafia. Um, you get that confirmed with the complete nihilism of the ending and the bodies that are sort of piled up by the end of the film. And also the title cards, which kind of um, very clearly and directly assert all of the problems of the, of the mafia. And I, I guess that's hinted at as well with the waste management subplot, right? With, with, the, with the Kimura... Uh, being associated with toxic waste and the management of toxic waste uh, in Italy, uh, you know, there is the sense that that's a metaphor for their kind of um, pollution of society. And I, I felt that, you know, in, in kind of making this critique of, of that culture, 
um, we're not encouraged to identify with the characters. Although, you know, you do have sympathy for the kids, I think. I think, yeah, the, the especially Toto, the 13-year-old delivery boy who for some reason just decides that this is um, a good idea to get kind of mixed up in the uh, the mafia and it kind of doesn't end well for um, a lady that he has worked for. I think out of all the characters, he's probably the most kind of sympathetic. Him and perhaps the... Um, uh, Pasquale, the uh, tailor who has to kind of work two jobs and doesn't end particularly well for him either. I do think that the film does a really great way of illustrating how the mafia has its hand in everything in Italy. And, you know, it isn't just um, running drugs. It is, you know, waste management and even something like um, high fashion, which we think, you know, it's nothing to do with the mob. Herbs, everything to do with the mob in this case. And and a little fact for um, listeners that I found fascinating was that a lot of people who were in this film, because uh, Garona used non-professionals and people that were just local to the area, a, a surprising number of them have now been arrested for crimes relating to the mafia. So if you want a kind of interesting read, just go and look at the Wikipedia page for this film because... It, it it's not great <laughs> the number of people who have ended up in prison and there was a claim I believe by someone formerly of the Camorra who said that Grody had had to pay a not insubstantial amount of money to the mob as protection money whilst he was making the film which I again I thought was just kind of wild because watching it you do think it's amazing that Grody didn't end up with the target on his head because it is a very damning piece of uh, filmmaking but I think a really interesting one and if you do kind of want an anecdote to the glamour of um, the Hollywood depiction of gangsters then it should definitely be on your watch list but that is about all we've got time for today if you have any thoughts on films we've talked about or suggestions for film club anything like that you can email us at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at littlewhitelies Thank you so much to my guests today, Simran and Darren. It's been a delight to have you both here and hopefully we'll have you back soon. And I should tell you all what's coming up next week when Michael will thankfully be back in the chair so I don't have to do this again. Um, It's finally no time to die as Bond hits the big screen. A young woman takes a leap of faith in Anne at 13,000 feet. And for Film Club, well... That's going to be in your hands as we'll be hosting a Bond World Cup on the Little White Lies Twitter to find out the best Bond. And that's what we'll be watching for Film Club. The best Bond, by the way, is on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Just saying. You can vote in the poll, Simran, and we'll take that into due consideration. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. I've been Hannah Strong, and this has been Truth in Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.